I came across a very interesting story this week. How many of y'all have heard of a man named Barnum Brown? I'd be very impressed if you had. <laughs> Barnum Brown. Uh, well, he was a man, he was born back in 1873 on his parents' farm in Kansas. And he went several weeks after he was born not having a name until his father saw an advertisement for P.T. Barnum Circus and just got tired of not having a name for his kid, just calling him Baby. So they named him Barnum as his first name, Barnum Brown. And growing up on a farm for little Barnum was all kinds of fun. Not because he enjoyed farming necessarily alongside his father. Uh, they also ran a strip mining operation out of their farm. So it dug up a lot of stuff uh, from their land. And what Barnum really liked to do is collect the stuff that got dug up. He liked collecting the little fossils and the shells, so much so that he filled every drawer in their house with these things. And if you have little kids, you know they do stuff like this. They collect things like this, or they'll pick up rocks and bring them in. You'll find them in their pockets when you're doing the wash or whatever. Uh, they, they do all this kind of stuff, but it really piqued his interest, little Barnum Brown. And so he grew up continuing to do this uh, to, where, to the point where he picked the college he was going to, the University of Kansas, and he studied an emerging science that was around, but not really as, you know, well-known as it may be today. He went into the field of paleontology there, digging up dinosaur bones, because he liked digging, and he liked bones, and he thought that was right up his alley. Well, in the department there, he had such a knack for being able to find bones in the dirt that they began to call him Mr. Bones, just in the paleontology department there at the University of Kansas. When he graduated, he became so well known at doing this, uh, a department head at the American Museum of Natural History sought him out and hired him to go around the world and dig up bones, just find as many bones as he could and bring them back. And at this particular time, there was kind of a, an unspoken competition between museums going on. Which museum could find the most and the biggest dinosaur bones in the world? And so they brought in this guy, Barnum Brown, thinking he could go and find as many big bones as he could. And he found one pretty quickly uh, in Wyoming. He found a pretty good-sized dinosaur bone. I can't remember, or, or skeleton, uh, almost complete skeleton. It was missing, I think, his rear legs. But uh, that was, at the time, the biggest... Uh, dinosaur bone, com almost complete skeleton they had. And they touted it, they put it all over the newspapers, all over the country, we've got this, you got to come to our museum. Well, there was another museum in Pennsylvania that was funded by Andrew Carnegie, you know, at Carnegie Hall, Andrew Carnegie, uh, and he started throwing money at this museum, and they began to go out, and they found bigger, they found the same kind of dinosaur that Barna Brown found, but it was bigger. And so they put out newspaper ads all over the country, we got a bigger one, come to our museum. And so pressure began to be put on Barnum Brown. You need to find us a big dinosaur bone, big dinosaur skeleton that we can, you know, people will come and see us from, from all over the world. And so he just went out and searched. He went all over the world. He went to South America. Uh, that's where he was uh, right before 1900. He went down to South America, didn't really turn up any results. See, after that initial find in Wyoming, he kind of hit a rough patch. And he really struggled at finding not just complete skeletons, but really much of anything, just some random stuff here and there. There were even some that he found in Montana that they couldn't identify 
what they belong to. And so he gets a call from his boss at the American Museum of Natural History. And, he's, and the boss tells him, you've got to find us a skeleton. Like, your job, you've got to find us one now. And he said, well, this was in 1902. Uh, Barnum Brown said, well, there was this one hill in Montana where I found these random things. We weren't able to identify what the, the bones were with. So why don't, why don't I go back there and I'll just dig in that hill for a while and we'll try to uncover something. Maybe it'll be, you know, a brand new dinosaur nobody's ever seen. And the guy said, fine, just do whatever. You've got to bring us back some dinosaur bones. So Barnum Brown heads up there with his team to Montana. Um, and what's funny is he was known at the time not just for being a finder, but for wearing really nice clothes when he would go to his digs, like showing up in a suit kind of a situation. And so picture Mr. Suitman out there in Montana. And this particular summer, he started work on this hill in Montana. Uh, it averaged 110 degrees out there. He's on a hill in Montana, 110 degrees in his suit, digging up in the dirt. And so he's digging and digging and digging, but they're discovering this hill is particularly difficult to dig in. They bring in plows at the time, and it just breaks the plows because the rock in the hill is so tough. So Barnum has this great idea. I'm going to stick some dynamite in this hill. We're just going to blow it up and see if we can you know, find some stuff from the holes that are left. So he does that, and they find some bones. They still can't identify what they go to, but one particular bone they found was a pelvis bone, and it weighed 4,000 pounds, which at the time, they had found nothing that was that size before. He's thinking, what in the world? They didn't even know dinosaurs got that big. He said, I have no idea what this goes to. This is a huge thing. Then they find a partial skull, and they don't know what it goes to. And they keep digging, and they keep searching uh, throughout this hill for six years. They're searching in this hill. He leaves no stone unturned as he's searching every crevice and rock in this hill looking for dinosaur bones. And they come across, finally, an almost complete skeleton, including a skull that weighed 1,000 pounds by itself. He's thinking this is the biggest, most amazing thing they've ever found. So they get it out, and they begin to, you know, chip away at all the rocks and, you know, dust them off with their little paleontology brushes or whatever. And uh, they get it out, and his boss at the American Museum of Natural History names the dinosaur. You would think the guy who dug it up got to name it, but no, the boss named it. And he named it a name you all know, because it was the first complete skeleton of a T-Rex that we have in the world. And Barnard Brown found this thing on a hill in Montana and they completed the process of, of, you know, getting it cleared away and refined so it looked nice. And uh, in ni- So he started searching for this dinosaur in 1902. In 1915, they put it on display. So from the time he started until they put it on display, it was 13 years. 13 years of work to get this dinosaur out there for everybody to see. Just because he would not stop searching until he found everything he was looking for. He wouldn't give up. Until he found it. And what's interesting, so he found this dinosaur. So he started in 1902. Uh, it took him six years to get this, this big old skeleton, 1908. The other museum that was racing didn't get their own T-Rex skeleton until 1940. So when all that time, they were the only ones in the world that had one. Because he wouldn't stop his searching. He was going to look everywhere he could to find what he was looking for. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's scripture, that Jesus teaches this very principle in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. 
Luke chapter 15. If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 874. 874. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. Everybody needs a Bible. We got more. If you don't have a Bible, take the one from the pew rack home. We're on page 874, Luke chapter 15. You see, here in Luke 15, something interesting has been going on in Jesus' ministry. You know, he's been teaching for a little while. He's been going around, doing his thing. He's been healing people for a little while. And crowds have been coming in droves to see him. But not just the regular crowds. People from the fringes of first century Jewish society have been coming to Jesus. And uh, in the midst of all of this, some of the notable people of the time still want to get to know Jesus. And so in Luke 14, he's invited, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to come and eat. So Jesus goes, but while he's there, the rest of Luke 14, he's teaching while he's there, kind of correcting some of their behaviors as well. Well, then Luke 15 comes in the midst of all of this, you know, cultural upheaval. And look at what happens in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled. That word means to emphatically complain. Emphatically complain. You Don't point. Don't even elbow. But just kind of give me one of those. You know anybody in your life who emphatically complains a lot? Who grumbles? <laughs> that was a little too emphatic on that nod over there. I'm not going to look at you for a minute. That was, <laughs> you know some people who, who grumble and complain, like emphatically complain. That's all they do. It's just complain and complain and complain. Well, here are the, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They're grumbling and complaining, emphatically complaining to each other. They're saying this man, talking about Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. He receives them. That, that means to, to favorably welcome them. It doesn't mean he endorses their behavior by any stretch of the imagination. It just means he uh, favorably receives them, favorably welcomes them in. And then they call them sinners. Now that word doesn't just mean, you know, people who sin. The way it's being used here, and it's used this way also in Luke 19 to talk about Zacchaeus, it's used in a derogatory fashion. It's mean to be a put down. It's it's meant to be uh, something very negative and almost a bad word in the way they use it. He receives sinners. He welcomes favorably sinners and eats with them. Kind of the way the Pharisees and scribes are saying it is, these people are lower than us. They've made decisions in their lives. They've, they need to live with the consequences of their decisions, and they should not be allowed to come around us. And he receives those people, and he welcomes them, and, and he talks with them, and he teaches them. And so this emphatic complaining is going on in among the scribes and the Pharisees. They really, they didn't like that Jesus liked people they didn't like. And they had a problem with that, that he liked people they didn't like. And so they, they wanted, they, they, they began to not like Jesus, not just because of what he was teaching against them, but because of the people that he welcomed, because of the people that he enjoyed company with. But you think about Jesus is, no one is off limits for Jesus. No one is off limits for Jesus. No one is too far gone for Jesus. He even, one of his disciples, calls in Judas, who ends up being the betrayer. 
whose name becomes synonymous now for centuries as somebody who betrays. You're a Judas, a betrayer. Jesus favorably welcomes these people that are despised and looked down upon by the Pharisees and scribes, who are the religious elite. They are the powerful people in society. But Jesus receives the others because no one is off limits for him. No one has done something that he cannot reach out to them. To think that someone is too far gone for Jesus belittles the power of God. And it pridefully misunderstands the severity of your own sins. When we think someone is too far gone for Jesus. It's been said in our own community at a period of time. Those people have made their decisions. That's a terrible thing to say. Because in reality, we've all made our decisions. And we're all sinners. Paul said that in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, when it comes to sin and, and spirituality and eternity, there's no levels of guilt to where one person is more guilty than someone else. It's not like a dimmer switch. It's an on-off switch. You have guilty and not guilty. There's no in-between. There's no, you got a little bit, not a much, not a lot. That, that person's more guilty than this person. That's not the way it works when it comes to guilt. You either are or you aren't. And what Paul tells us is we all are. Not one worse than somebody else. Everybody's guilty. Everybody's guilty and in need of a Savior. Everybody needs Jesus. And so when Jesus favorably welcomes people, including me, what that should produce in us is an unending gratitude. But Because without his favorable welcome, I don't have a seat at his table. And so his favorable welcome of anybody and everybody, me included, should not produce condemnation of other people because they don't yet have what I have, salvation. It should produce within me an urgency to give them that salvation. Because in reality, because there are no levels of guilt, everybody is either in need of eternal grace for redemption or today's grace to return. Everybody either needs to be saved or brought back to Jesus. Everybody either needs eternal grace for redemption, for eternity, or you need today's grace to come back to Jesus. Grace is for everybody, and we all need grace constantly, every single day, from God, from Jesus. The problem because becomes when we Christians don't give grace to other people. We don't offer grace to other people. We, they do something or they offend us or they say something or they vote a certain way, and we don't give them any kind of grace. We kind of look down on them, despise them a little bit, maybe because of their, cho- their choice of uh, 24-7 news channel. We look down on them because of that. We look down on them because of the way they dress or because of the car they drive. We, look, we may not say it out loud, but it may be in the back of our head. We may not, you know communicate it, but it's there. Maybe it's deeply rooted from how we were brought up. But in reality, we all need grace. And looking down on somebody else misunderstands our position with God. Everybody is in need of Jesus. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is off limits. Nobody can rest in the eternal condemnation of their decisions if they're still here. 
If they're still here, they still have opportunity for Jesus. If they're still here, they still have purpose for Jesus. If they're still here, he's still got something for them. And it's on us to give them that Jesus. Will we give that Jesus to anybody and everybody? Because everybody needs Jesus. But that's not something these Pharisees and scribes saw. They are emphatically complaining. They're grumbling about the kind of people that are coming to Jesus. And so look at verse 3. It says, so he told them this parable. Now, I love this, right? So he told them this parable. If you notice back up in verse 1 and 2, they didn't complain to Jesus. They were complaining to each other. But Jesus tells this parable to them because he knows what they're saying. He knows what they're talking about. Maybe it's like small town. Everybody knows what everybody else is talking about. And if you don't know what they're talking about, you make up what they're talking about. Jesus knows what they're talking about. And so he tells them this parable in response to their close circuit conversation. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he founds it? Now, we got to understand a couple of things here. Um, Jesus is teaching a parable here, not a history lesson. Because inevitably, some people ask the question, well, if one shepherd leaves 99 sheep to go find a lost one, that doesn't make sense. Who's going to take care of the 99 sheep? If he's going after the one sheep, it's better to, to, to have 99 and lose one than find one and lose 99. But that, again, misses the point. This is a parable, not a history lesson. A parable in Scripture is a story told usually with one specific meaning. And it's not like an allegory where each element is parsable that we can find meaning behind it. And in actuality, if this were history, 100 sheep and one shepherd isn't enough. If this were history, there'd be a team of shepherds. So one guy going out to find the one is totally fine. In actuality, here in Luke chapter 15, it's a famous chapter. There's three parables in this chapter. All three parables are about the same thing. Lost things. In response to the Pharisees complaining about sinners, unbelievers. Jesus is talking about lost people here. This actual, this, this first parable is often misconstrued and misunderstood to talk about believers, that, that the lost sheep is actually a believer. You're going to find someone who's backslidden, but that's not in context what he's talking about. He's talking about lost people, people who don't know Jesus. That's who he's talking about here. He says, okay, you got 99 believers, and you got one who's about to fall off a cliff. Naturally, it makes more sense. Get the one off the cliff. They're not about to die. 99, they're good to go. Let's get the one who's about to die and let's save him. And so Jesus says, here you've got this, this shepherd going out to find the lost sheep. Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, that's one unbeliever who gets saved, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in this context, again, shepherds and sheep were prevalent. They were all over the place. And so everyone in the, in the audience he's telling this to would, would understand and know, no shepherd is going to leave a sheep lost. If a sheep is lost, the shepherd's going to go try to find that sheep with everything he's got. And he's going to search until he finds it. And then he says that interesting thing there in verse 7. 
there will be more joy over one sinner who repents, one unbeliever who gets saved, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, people who are already saved. Now, he's not saying that there's no joy over faithfulness. No, there's still joy. What, he, what he's communicating to the people he's talking to is, he says there's more joy. There's still joy over people being faithful. Absolutely, that absolutely needs to happen. But if you've got one, like I said a second ago, it's about to fall over a cliff, and you grab them at the last second from falling over a cliff, you're going to be a little excited. Imagine if it were your kid. Does that make you any less excited over the kids that were over here? No. You're still excited. They're your kids. But you're going to be super excited you saved the one from falling off a cliff. That's the imagery. There is joy, more joy, over one sinner who repents, one person getting saved. You see, God celebrates anybody coming to Jesus, no matter from where they come. God celebrates anybody coming to Jesus, no matter from where they come. They can come from anywhere. Every, Paul and I were talking about this a little bit ago. It doesn't matter. You just come to Jesus. Come as you are. You came from the dirtiest, grossest, baddest, terriblest place you've ever, I know terrible is not a word, but you, you come from anywhere over there. You just come to Jesus as you are. Don't get perfect first. Don't get cleaned up first. Don't do any of that. Just come as quickly as possible. Just come as fast as possible. Get there as quickly as possible. And that's the idea we should have of other people. We shouldn't expect them to get all dolled up for Jesus and get all nice in their spiritual life before they come to Jesus. That's not it at all because in actuality, we can't do that. We can't get all spiritually perfect before we come to Jesus. We can't because we need Jesus to do it. we got to come to Jesus first and allow him to take care of everything else. We got to come to Jesus first. That's why Jesus is giving the, the, these three parables about saving the lost and then rejoicing when the lost come. Because the issue isn't where the lost person was or where the lost person went when they were lost. The issue isn't what the lost person said when they were lost. The issue is not what the lost person did when they were lost. The issue isn't even what the lost person was thinking when they were lost. The issue is that they were lost and now they're found. Being found is what matters. All that other doesn't matter because Jesus redeems it. Jesus forgives it. Jesus saves the person. You think the shepherd who saved the sheep from falling off the cliff cares that the sheep went through briars to get there, went through mud to get there, tripped, broke his leg? The, the sheep may have intentionally gone off the cliff. Does the shepherd care? No, the shepherd saved the sheep. He doesn't care about any of that other stuff. He's just happy to have the sheep. God celebrates anybody, anybody coming to Jesus, no matter from where they come. How far they travel, wherever they went. He's excited that they came at all. So let's go a little bit further. Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice that it's, if you have a red letter, still red letters next. There's no break, no pause, uh, no bathroom break. He just goes right into the next parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now the implication here is that these ten silver coins are all the money she has. She has ten silver coins, that's it. And she loses a coin. She says, he says, what kind of person, if this is all you have, doesn't light a lamp 
Sweep the house. Seek diligently until you find it. And again, context here. Back then, most homes were in this particular area. It may have been one room, possibly two rooms, like maybe three if you were like really well off. Uh, so if this is one room, you're searching everywhere in that room to find the coin. Anybody ever search for something lost? Like you just cannot find it for the, the TV remote. You still can't, you still can't find the TV remote, and it's been three years. You 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 know you got the one from Walmart that costs five ninety nine that does the thing, and three of the buttons don't work, and you can't. You know it, it's that you 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 lose your mind trying to look for it. You lose your mind trying to look for it. And uh, if she loses one coin, she lost it, and she's searching. She's sweeping the house with that broom in the darkness of the inside. She's lighting a lamp. She's hoping she can hear the, 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 the coin scrape across the ground as she's sweeping that ground, trying everything she can to find it, looking everywhere constantly. Look at verse 9. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost, just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She calls her friends and neighbors. You can almost picture having lost the coin. She calls them. Did I lose it at your house? Like when I came over, did it fall out of my pocket when I was there at your house? I cannot find this thing, and I got to find this thing. I don't know where it is. And she's searching high and low for it. Everybody has that issue where you try to find it. That is multiplied exponentially if you have children trying to find the thing that has been misplaced and can't be found. You know, that was the case with our TV remote constantly until I put one of those little tracker things on it. So now I just pull up my phone, I hit the button, and it makes a noise, and I can find it now. But when you can't, it, it really does say, I just had it, I was standing right there, and now it's not there. I turned my back for three seconds, and now it's gone. Jesus says, this, cause this woman to search diligently for this. There's a story that I've told before. Katie reminded me. I probably heard it from Tony Evans about uh, a, a kid comes into his mom and says, I've lost my contact and I can't find it. I've been looking and looking and looking. I cannot find it anywhere. Can I just open the pack and get a new one out? And mom says, no. Did you look here? Yeah, I looked there. Did you look there? Yeah, I looked there. Did you look over here in the bathroom, in the, in the, the bath mat right in front of the, the sink? Yeah, I looked there. I couldn't find it. And the mom says, stop. We're not opening one of those packs. And the mom says, so if I go in there and look, I'm not going to find it. He says, no, you're not, because I searched. High, low. It's gone. So the mom goes and looks. And she's looking. She searches the bedroom, under the bed. She's looking in the carpet, in the rug, in the pile of dirty clothes. She, she, she's looking everywhere this kid has gone, in front of the fridge. And she ends up finding it, but it takes her like an hour and a half. And she, find, she goes, I found it. And he's sitting on the couch playing with his phone, watching TV. Oh, great. And she goes and she puts, get, you know, gets a little contact thing, solution, soaks it up, and he pops it back in his eye. But the question comes, why was the mom able to find it? When the kid was not, he said, well, he's a teenager. There you go. No, it's because she knew how much the contact was worth. She said, you're not opening that pack and spending. Every time you open that pack, that's X amount of dollars. That's dollar signs. The mom knew how much that contact was worth. And so she was going to search until she found it. You see, because value for the lost determines diligence for the search. Value for the lost determines diligence for the search. And that was the word that Jesus used in that passage. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently 
until she finds it. That word diligently literally means a thorough and careful participation. Thorough. Absolute going everywhere, exhaustive, and uncovering every possible avenue of the, to find the lost. Value for the lost determines diligence of the search. Maybe we haven't seen somebody saved personally because we haven't been searching. Maybe we haven't been searching. This woman searched diligently, and she wasn't going to stop. That shepherd went out and searched diligently until he found the sheep. He wasn't going to stop. Sometimes people stop because the value's not there. Value to a point, value till it's inconvenient, value till it makes us uncomfortable because of where it is and who it is. But Jesus is communicating to these Pharisees and scribes and his disciples, obviously, who were there and writing this down, that value for the lost determines diligence of the search. Jesus tells us in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He valued the lost so much that he became like a person, one of his own creation, in the midst of the problems, knowing he was going to be ridiculed, knowing he was going to be beaten, knowing he was going to be crucified to death. He valued us so much that he came and did that. And he was not going to stop. He loved us so much that he came and did that. How much value do we have for other people? How much value do we have for the lost? You know, I asked you earlier to imagine that that sheep going over the cliff was one of your kids. And wouldn't you do anything, be so excited if you grabbed him from the edge of the cliff? Every lost person out there is somebody's kid. Every one of them. How much do we value them? Wouldn't we want somebody else to tell our kid about Jesus if we weren't around them? Value for the lost. How much do we value the lost? And how much we value the lost in our diligence of search will then be passed on to the next generation. Because what we value, we pass on. Our kids don't always replicate our own values. But if it's a, a, a habitual, constant habit, they will understand the value that's there. Value for the lost determines the diligence of the search. How much do we value the lost? How much? Do we value them enough to inconvenience ourselves? To bring them in this room. You know, next Sunday we're going to be talking about the rest of this chapter, the lost son. <clears throat> Some of your Bibles call it the prodigal son. But it's really the, you have the lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son. We're going to be talking about that next week. There are some people you interact with this week you already know are lost and need Jesus. But there's some people you're going to interact with over the next seven days you don't know who they are yet because you haven't run into them yet. But Jesus has already divinely put them on your schedule, in your path. And I want you to be thinking about this phrase as you interact with everybody this week. Do you value their eternal life as much as Jesus did coming and dying? Value for the lost determines diligence of the search. And the thing about that is, Jesus brings these people in front of our path constantly. It's not like we're having to run to Mozambique to find lost people. They're all over this place. 
Value for the lost determines diligence of the search. Will we search and find what he's put in front of us? Everyone is valuable to Jesus. Everyone is valuable to Jesus. Jesus values everyone. Jesus values you so much to come and die and raise for your eternal life. And so if you're sitting in this room today and you have not yet been found by Jesus, it's not for lack of trying. He's trying to find you. Will you be found by him today? Will you believe in him today? That Jesus is the son of God, died so all your sins would be forgiven, rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe that? Because here's the thing too. If you believe that today, you cannot unbecome a Christian tomorrow. If you're a Christian today, you're a Christian, period. There's no comma at the end of that sentence. It's all time. Jesus' death and resurrection was so powerful it covers all your sins, all of them. No matter what sin you do tomorrow, you cannot unbe saved. You're saved, period. It's saved forever. Because if you could, if you could do something that could unsave you, that means you're more powerful than Jesus, and you're not. You're saved forever if you believe in him. So will you believe in Jesus today? Believe that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. Believe that he came and found you and rescued you from death eternally. Will you? Believe that Jesus values you that much. Did I see here in just a little bit, I'm going to pray. I'll be standing here at the front. Pastor Jared will be at the back. And if you want to make a decision like that, believing in Jesus or, or, or being baptized, show the world you belong to Jesus. Come and talk to one of us. If you want to join the church, come and talk to one of us. If you just want to come and pray, then come up here and pray for yourself, pray for other people that need to be saved. Maybe pray for your own heart in an understanding that no one is off limits for Jesus. No one is off limits for the gospel. Maybe you need to pray about who you need to bring to Jesus. Who do you need to bring to Jesus? Maybe you need to pray about who you need to bring here next week to hear about the lost son. Who maybe that person is a lost son. Who needs to come and hear about Jesus? And so after I pray, what decision do you need to make? What do you need to do in response to Jesus' action and Jesus' word that he values you in the way that he does through his death, his resurrection, through his communication as he did here with the scribes and Pharisees, that no one is too far gone, no one is off limits, that he values everyone in the diligence of his search.